Empire. Hello and welcome to my podcast. Do me a favor, subscribe to the John Conn Report wherever you get your podcast, and you can like, subscribe to us on YouTube. Go to the Empire Media YouTube page. That's A M P I R E. Again, like, subscribe, follow us there. It would be much appreciated. Today, I'm joined by Michael Phillips from the Richmond Times Dispatch as we break down Washington's 2022 schedule, which was just released Thursday night. And I'm joined by Mike Rodak, who writes for, who covers Alabama for AL.com. And he'll join me to talk about two Washington draft picks, Fedarian Mathis and Brian Robinson, two guys that he knows very well. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael P. RTD, and you can follow Mike Rodak at Mike Rodak. Very simple. I'm going to lead off with Michael Phillips because today is about the schedule. So let's get to my conversation with Michael Phillips from the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Welcome back with America's podcast guest, Michael Phillips. Michael, the schedule comes out and it's almost like it's treated like there should be parades thrown because the the grand announcements, we already knew who they were playing. We just didn't know when and where. But I'm curious for you, what was there a game that you jumped to right away when this schedule came out? I'm, I'm a big bye week guy. I want to look at the bye week and know when the bye week is, um, both for the team and the flow of the year. And also for me personally, I usually, uh, wife and I get out of town on, on a couple of those days at least. So that's always, uh, you know, is it going to be like a nice fall retreat, like a rustic winery kind of situation? Will it be a winter, you know, get, get south, go to the Bahamas, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, I get, you know, I'll hit you, up to, hit you up to borrow the ESPN jet, you know, something like that. Um, I'm always, I'm always looking out for, for little, you know, quirks. And I think we've got one here with the double giants game back to back. Um, and, and then, you know, I, I think you're looking at, you know, we make so much of it. I'll, I'll preempt your next question here. We make so much of the game by game, but I think the most important thing is those first four. Cause those are the ones where we can say right now with reasonable confidence, you know, what players are going to be playing for the other team in those first four. And you can get, you, we can already make our, you know, what's that going to be like? Where will they be? What kind of season is it going to be? Are they going to be chase the leaders from behind or get out in front and, and, and be chased? Well, and speaking of those four, you got Jacksonville, Detroit, and then the Eagles and Cowboys. So you need to come away with two or three wins out of that group. If you don't, the season is setting up in a bad way. That, if you, you know, I'd say you should sweep those first two, but you've got to win two or three of those first four, right? I mean, is it, then that to me is a minimum two wins. If you want to be a wild card team, you can come out of that two and two and still be perfectly fine. If you want to be a division winner, I think you got to come out of that three and one because you can't you can't stumble two division games out of the gate. It's too much chasing later on, especially those two. And I don't want to write off the Giants on May 12th, but I'm going to write off the Giants, John. They're not going to win the division this year. <laughs> I'll write them off on May 10th. I would have written them off. <laughs> the name that too, and we could bid how early we write off the Giants. <laughs> those are the two teams you're going to be competing against, Philly right. and Dallas. So it, it's an opportunity to make a strong statement early, start start off with a win against them, um, you know, and set the tone that you're going to be in that division hunt. You know, whether you can or not is another question, but if you're going to be in the hunt, you got to pick up one of those two. And when you look at the schedule, 
it does kind of break where there are natural breaks in the schedule. You know, you, you open with those two games against teams that whatever, however they are this year, they're not coming off good years. And, you know, then you have Eagles, Cowboys, Titans, but then you get the Bears, you know, and now granted it's on the road, but it's still the Bears. They're not exactly, we're in a powerhouse. And, you know, Green Bay, Colts, we don't know, Vikings, we don't know. Um, But you do get like, you get the Houston, Atlanta Giants trifecta. That's Mm -hmm. a good, you know, again, we don't know how these teams are going to be, but if you had to bet on three teams that you felt like were still in that rebuilding phase, those are three of the teams. And it, you actually get them four in a row because you get the like you said, you get the Giants twice right after the bye. So that's a good stretch for them. And it just feels like there's there are a couple of tough spots in this schedule. But is there is there one where you say, oh my God, you're not winning this game? They're just tough games. You know, I mean, there's I'm, nothing that would scare anybody. Yeah, I'll cut against the grain here because I'm a big Titans believer. I think the Titans are a good team, and I know they. Oh, I think they're a good team, they, but they're they not got a their team. issues. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm looking at Cowboys, Titans, Bears, Packers. If you if you break that into a four game stretch, that's but I'd say your underdogs in three of those games, and the Bears is a Thursday night on the road, and you know it's roll the dice on a Thursday night road game. Like it, you know, how many times do we see that? Tom Brady forgets his fourth down on a Thursday right. night game on the right. road. Like you know, it just the weird things happen in those games. Definitely, I'm, I'm looking at that as a brutal stretch. But your overall point stands. I think it's a tough stretch. It's not a brutal stretch. No. Year three, easy schedule, more pieces in place. Today's revelation of the schedule does nothing to derail this train of they need to be a wild card team. They need to be in contention this year. That remains the driving storyline entering this season is it's year three, show me something. And there's nothing tonight that's going to pour cold water on that. Well, and the, and right. And I don't like, you know, the, the strength of schedule stuff is a little bit, it's very misleading because we're looking at a team, what they did last year and like a team like Cleveland, you would think that they're going to be much improved with assuming Deshaun Watson is on the field for them. Um, you know, you don't like, what will Chicago do with a new coach and, and Justin Fields second year? What mm-hmm. does, what does, you know, Jacksonville, they're going to be a slot, somewhat a mystery team lower and second year. So you're looking at last year trying to project them a little bit. But in terms of the strength schedule, it is the easiest one along with Dallas. So that it does set up. And this team should be better in, uh, offensively. And, and because I think the other thing, Michael, too, and this is we already knew this, but I think they play two quarterbacks who finished in the top 10 in total QBR last year. And as opposed to last year, six of the top 10 they faced. And like, I think it was eight of the top 14. That's a big difference. So you're right. I mean, this whole thing sets up with, they should win, should. They can, they could, you can make a strong case that they should win 10 games or can win 10 or 11 games. And I don't know, maybe 11 is pushing it, but 10 is not. I don't think 10 pushing it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump on the bandwagon with you for 10. I, I think it's a, it's a favorable market. You know, look, I'm, I'm trying to be glass half full these days, John, because, you know, I'm just, I bring, raise the sunshine everywhere I go. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to be negative, I don't, but if you wanted to be negative, you'd point out those first two games, Jacksonville and Detroit are high downside games. You know, oh, yeah. if, you, if you lose a home opener against Jacksonville, Hey, you, you know, there's going to be this big push, get, get the fans out, get everybody going. If you lose that game, that's potentially 
devastating, not just your on-field efforts, but your off-the-field efforts as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Leaving in traffic after Trevor Lawrence torches you for four touchdowns. So it's a high downside game. But look, this is the game they want to play right now. This is the game. This is the schedule they want to play. This is what they've built through the last two years. I think, you know, Every time we do one of these, I say the same thing, and that is this season rides on the defense. They've got to be significantly better than they were last year because they can be because the talent level is significantly higher than it was last year. And this is a schedule where they will get every opportunity to prove, to tee off against some quarterbacks who got sacked a lot last year, some quarterbacks that weren't great. This is going to be reminiscent of that down the stretch run in 2020 where they faced, you know, a lot of okay to mediocre quarterbacks several weeks in a row they're going to do that again this year it's going to be an opportunity for them to prove themselves but they do have you look at their last three games are tough because you got at san francisco so depending on how trey lance is playing we don't know that's again another mystery or it could it could be jimmy g it could be you know but then you got the browns and and possibly deshaun watson and then dak prescott whom they have struggled against so that's not the ideal finish, but three of the last four at home is a good finish. And so it would be fun if that last game against Dallas comes down to a playoff spot. We've done that before. Listen, you could finally buy a T-shirt that matters for one of these matchup <laughs> games. Uh, did they make a T-shirt for the 2012 D- Dallas game? This would be, uh, would, this would be the, the 10th anniversary of oh what I would argue is the high watermark of the entire FedEx field era. Oh, you yeah. More of it than I have. But I, it, on the 10th anniversary of potentially the greatest moment in FedEx field history, Robert beating the Cowboys to secure a playoff spot. Alfred Friday. Morris. Thank you. Alfred Morris. Um, game. Sure. That, that we potentially get to run that back. That's exciting. That gets me excited. You know, I was thinking like, I, hey, it's May 12th. This is schedule release. I'm a jaded sports writer. I'm not getting excited. You got me excited. Thinking about that. That's a juicy matchup. Listen, Cowboys week, week 18, it's all on the line. Let's go. I mean, that would be that would be a great, great atmosphere if that's the case. And you and that's that's what you would see as some life to be able to breathe back into this franchise if you get that kind of a situation. Because again, that crowd, that game was electric, and that whole year was electric. So if they can get back to that. I think people would be pretty happy, whatever the name is, right? And, you know, I think that would be what, – what about – this is a selfish one for, for us. Yeah. I apologize for my phone keeps going off. But, but t- tell, but, Adam, tell Adam Schefter you'll get to him in a minute. <laughs> play, playing at San Francisco on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Selfishly, it is not the best deal for us. Well, we can all agree. Look, this is also a raw deal for the fans because – that game is a 4:05 p.m. kickoff, and I think many of our many of our listeners probably attend Christmas Eve services with their families. Uh, you know, I know we always do. That's right in that time zone, five, six, seven o'clock p.m. You know, take the family, go to church, go go to dinner. You know, do the Christmas Eve things. That's right in that window of time, and you know, not that it'll stay there because it could get you know it could get flexed if it's a meaningful game, but it it can't get flexed the other way because we're on the West Coast. So I, that's a bad time for humanity uh to to be watching sports is uh is four o'clock on christmas eve so because i'm a glass half full guy that's that's my new persona john i will point out all home games um are one o'clock right. kickoffs uh no prime times 
Uh, you know, that's been a gripe of the fan base is it is tough to get to Landover yeah. on a Thursday night or a Monday night. Attendance uh, reflects that. Well, and attendance reflects that. So I, I think it's uh, a real positive from the schedule makers here that they're loaded up with one o'clock Sunday kicks. I think the fan base has spoken. That is their preferred kickoff time. Well, and I also, I also think if you're a, um, a network and you see the attendance at those games here, is that something you want to highlight? I don't think you, I wouldn't. And I, and again, I think like you could get back to that. If they have a good year, if they win 10 games, we're going to see a couple primetime games easily in 2023, because that's typically how it works. And, you know, I, I think, Getting one, I mean, listen, I was shocked that they put Philly on a Monday night game with Carson Wentz going back there. Who would have seen that coming? <laughs> that'll be another fun one, too. He's You get two out of three weeks, you get him going to face the Colts, but going to face the Eagles yeah. will be a fun one for, for, as a, you know, for reporters, for fans, and just to see the reaction, you know how the crowd will be, but his reaction to all that on the field. Wait. 8.15 p.m. kickoff in Philly. You know, that'll give them a little bit of time to uh, to, to hit a couple of beverages before that game, John. I, I think they're going to come in good and lubed up. There might be a couple of inebriated customers that night. Yes. Yeah, no. So, but, you know, looking at the schedule, and again, I mean, we already knew the opponents, so it's not like this is a shock. But I do think it does set up well for them to have, again, even those games that are tough, they're tough. I don't think – Green Bay will be a very tough game. And I agree with you on Tennessee. That's a very tough game. But I think it's a winnable game. You know, when you look at how things can go, I don't think it's them playing the Rams or someone like that. Um, sure. Or, you know, or the Patriots back in the day. You know, I'm, I'm, there, there's the opportunity to make hay here. And I, I think the road games are very favorable to it. I, the other game I, I play when I look at the schedule is what will Ron complain about. Um, cause that's the game he plays when he looks at the schedule. Right. Right. And of course the thing Ron will complain about is that he has to travel to the Thursday night game in Chicago, oh. uh, you know, tra- traveling across a time zone on the short week there, John. Um, but I, that's the biggest gripe. He's probably also not going to be happy with going Monday night in Philly. To send, that was to mine. That was going to be mine. Um, that was, that was my first games off the Monday nighter. Yep. Um, I would have to say though, if, if your biggest gripe involves, a road game in Houston on six days rest, we're doing all right here. Right, right. And so I, but I think when, again, within the schedule, the context of the schedule, but when you look at this team, do you think they are, how much more, how much improved improvement do you think they've made from last year? Well, you know, I, I see, uh, you know, let, let's start with the quarterback because we have to a major stride forward. My Taylor Heineke bona fides are well-established. I love the kid. I'm glad he's still around. This is an upgrade right. at the most important position on the field. And here's the thing. The offense didn't stink last year. And I know that that's, you know, it kind of all got washed up in this everybody stunk mentality. The offense was fine and they've got enough playmakers. And certainly now that they've taken dots and they've got enough playmakers to distribute the ball to. If this offense finished, how many teams make the playoffs now? 14, 16? I think, I think all of them do. <laughs> we'll put that to the test, don't you worry. <laughs> 14, seven in each. Yes. Right. If four teams, teams make the playoffs every If this offense finishes 14th best in the National Football League, if, if we say they're going to be right around that, that middle of the pack, they're going to be a 14th best offense, you tell me right now, do they make the playoffs or not? I think the answer has to be, of course you think they make the playoffs because yeah. this defense needs to be better than 14th in the league. 
And, and so, you know, if the offense can just give you that, they can give you enough, you, you know, it's time for that defense to take the leap, get the job done. We can, we can debate that. And I think I could take either side of that debate. They didn't do enough at middle linebacker. I don't think they got deep enough in the secondary. I think there are still major holes on the unit, but there's still a lot of raw talent there and a lot, you know, a lot of unrealized potential from last year, certainly up front, that if you can get the results, you, you know, you can get out of those guys. I think it's good enough. And I also think a big key, again, I go back to the quarterbacks they're facing this year as opposed to last year. And it was why last year I thought they'd at least have worse numbers. I didn't think they'd be as bad as they were early on. Um, and especially and then late in the year, you can like COVID and injuries and all that. They had an eight-game stretch where I went back and did the stats where they were about top 10 in a lot of areas or right around that area. That's where they need to be. And that's where they should be with this schedule, with the quarterbacks they're facing. And again, like, listen, you know, we don't know. Um, I mean, Deshaun Watson, I, I said two, two of the top 10. Well, he didn't play last year. He'd be a top 10 guy. Um, what does, you know, what does Trevor Lawrence do this year? So he may be much better with a new coach, a better coach um, well, than Doug Peterson. So we don't, it, some of that's misleading, but yeah. when you look at it, it's a different caliber that should help them. Two against the Giants and a quarterback who's not top 10 unless he's playing against this team. Right. And, and Jalen, <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And Jalen Hurts, who is, you don't know what you're going to get, but you will get a good running game. And so you've got to stop that. And I think that's one where that's where a guy like, you know, Fidarius Mathis comes in. But you're right. They've got to have better linebacker play for them to take that step. They, um, I'd like to, I would like to have seen them add a little bit more in the secondary, whether, and I think there's, there's still time for some of that but you're not talking high caliber players that you're going to be adding. You're going to be adding depth. Um, and so I think, you know, they still have work to do, but that's why you look at them as a 10 win team, not a 12 win team. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the potential offensively is to be a little, is definitely to be in that middle of the pack and slightly above, um, you know, so it, it, a lot depends on Curtis Samuel stay healthy. Diami's got to progress. Um, Gibson and Robinson, if, they, if they're the duo you think they are, there are questions. But funny thing is, like, I think Carson Wentz will be good enough to be in that range. I, I think he, Carson Wentz will benefit so much from being in Washington, D.C., a place where we have watched so little good quarterback oh. play. You think about the Indianapolis fans. Oh, boo, he's not Peyton Manning. He's not Andrew Luck. He's not Phillip Rivers. Like, what is this guy? That will not be an issue here for him. Uh, that that will not be a problem going yeah, forward. They're not going to say, "Oh, he's not Josh Johnson. He's no Mark <laughs> Sanchez." If if we're saying he's no Taylor Heineke, we have much bigger problems this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we'll be yeah. having another discussion, another quarterback next year if that's the case. Well, I I had come on the pod. The reason I agreed to come on was I was under the impression this was when you'd be unveiling your mock preseason schedule, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which I know we're all eagerly anticipating. Well, I. I put out the towns of Kevin Sheen. If you're really something, because he likes that mock schedule, put out your mock 2023 schedule tomorrow. Because that also <laughs> did, then you have to guess which of the two teams are going to be added next year for you. So that's when you, when, when you can really do it, that's what you're doing. So I love it. Go. Michael, I appreciate you coming on and you know, it's, it's at least good to know what the schedule is and where we'll be and when. I, uh, you know what? I, I know it's roundly mocked when you run through and say win-loss, win-loss, or all that, but I'm going to do it later tonight because um, why not? There you go. Yeah, again, so you, you're you sticking with 16-1, and one, right? Resting the starters in week 18? 
Well, I, I said 15 and two because the refs are going to job him in one of the games, and that's okay. unacceptable. Because <laughs> they don't like the name. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, Michael, thanks a lot. All right, take care. After this break, I'll be joined by Mike Rodak, who covered Fedarian Mathis and Brian Robinson for AL.com as an Alabama Crimson Tide beat reporter. He gives us a lot of insight into two of Washington's newest players. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Now here's my conversation with AL.com's Mike Rodak. Mike, it's really good to see you. And for people who don't know, Mike was part of our NFL Nation group covering the Bills for a while, did a great job. Now covers the Crimson Tide um, in Alabama. And so Washington, of course, has two players that they selected from there. They went back to their their farm system, so to speak, and get Fedarian Mathis and then Brian Robinson. And I want to start with Mathis. And first thing is, and he seems like a big personality. And it's funny because he told us Fedarian, he spelled it out for us. He said, there's no L. Then I look on his Twitter feed and he calls himself Phil. So like, I don't know what, but, but anyway, he seems like a personality. seems like a good player in general, Mike, what is Washington getting with Fedarian Mathis? Yeah. Well, we always call them Phil. And then I kind of had to remember if I was writing, I had to write it as Fedarian, which I almost had to remember how to spell it. Cause I never actually called him that, but he's, he's Phil. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a player who I think can really fit either into a three, four as a defensive end, or four three as a tackle. Um, if you're in a sub package, he's probably more of an interior guy. So he's a guy who I think, you know, at Alabama, you look at back at, I remember doing this because we were talking about Evan Neal as a potential number one overall pick at Alabama. And we were looking and we we're saying who was the highest draft pick of the Saban era. And it was two guys. It was Quinn and Williams and Marcel Darius, who are both defensive tackles, both guys who are penetrators and um, could really disrupt plays. And that's why they went number three overall. Mathis is not in that category. He's not as disruptive of, of a player as those guys were. He's not going to wreak havoc in the way that an Aaron Donald or one of those real interior pass rushers can. That's just not his style. I think he's more of a two-gapper guy who can kind of hold blocks, hold the line a little bit, um, more of a run defender than I would say a, a pass rusher, um, especially even you look at last year, at Christian Barmore going out in the second round, went to the Patriots. That was because he was rushing the passer. I think Mathis is a second-round pick because of the size of his body, because of his sturdiness against the run, and because of some of the intangibles that I think he, he brings just as a leader. Um, he was he was voted as a team captain last year. One of the there's always four permanent team captains at Alabama. So he was one of those four has his his handprint in concrete um, on the campus now in Alabama and is his cleat print. So he's a guy who I think players respected in that locker room. He's a leader, um, just a, a reliable player off the field, but also a reliable player on the field, but not really a spectacular sort of game wrecking sort of player. So, Mike, one of the things that attracted Washington to Mathis. And when, you know, I talked to somebody here and they said, what they talked to the Alabama coaches, they, the coaches use the word selfless with him. 
and that he was really good at taking on the double teams, like you said. I think that's something they because they watch Christian Harris and they see, well, he's making these big plays. Why is that? Well, he's oftentimes clean to the ball, and they would go back and say, who is making him, who is letting him be clean? And it's oftentimes Mathis. Is that kind of what he did really well for Alabama, and is that what you'd hear from coaches there? Definitely, yeah, and that's really what I think the, the role is for him in the Alabama defense because they still run – the three, four, where, you know, the defensive linemen, if there are three of them on the field, sometimes it's only two, you know, because of sub packages, but in general, what Alabama wants is their defensive linemen to just occupy space, to be those, those pluggers up front and allow the linebackers to do what they do, which in Alabama's case, they have two really good ones on the inside that like you mentioned in Harris and Henry Toto, then two really good pass rushers outside where that's where their pass rush generated from. So the guys along the defensive line, I don't want to say they're just there, but they're there to do what they do, which is to occupy blockers and to be selfless. And they're not going to be guys who you're going to be writing about after a game about how they had all these sacks or made all these big plays. You're probably going to be writing more about the, the linebackers. But again, that's because of the defensive linemen. And you can ask the linebackers, like you said, it makes their job a lot easier when those guys are, are doing what they need to do. And I think we saw that, um, you know, national championship game, Christian Harris had two sacks probably helped that he had Phil Mathis in front of him, helping him out. You know, Will Anderson on the outside could be the number one overall pick next year. Probably helps that he has a guy like Mathis on the inside who defenses need to worry about coming up, up the middle. So yeah, it's all you know, a piece of the puzzle. And I think that's probably what Mathis will be in the NFL as well as a piece of that puzzle. When you have guys around him who can make plays and just have Mathis do what he does best, which I think is, is just occupy space and, and be a reliable guy in the middle. Were people, do you think people were saying, I don't know what you, well, what were you hearing about his draft projection before the draft and were people surprised that he went in that, in the second round? Yeah, I think second might've been a little bit earlier. I think even he mentioned it too, where he was expecting, or his agent was expecting. Well, him his to agent go said later. that, and then she, she was saying that she basically tried to lessen expect or manage expectations and not get him overexcited about where he might go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but I, I'd heard from some people that like they thought third round um, that after talking to a lot of teams, right. but you know, it was an average of the third round, which meant that some thought second and some thought maybe a little bit later. So, and this was all over the place. So, uh, but what were you hearing and what were you thinking he might do? Yeah, I was thinking third as well, you know, going back to what NFL teams kind of look for. If you're looking for a standout trait, you know, from a, a defensive lineman, you're looking probably for him to be able to rush the passer and to have that sort of elite ability if he's going to go in the first round or the second round to have those traits. And I don't know if, if Mathis quite has those those pass rush traits that would push him high in the draft like that. But, you know, the place in the draft where the reliable sort of less spectacular players tend to go is the third or the fourth round. And that's that's really where I had him picked or projected myself. Again, the second round, I don't know if there's a huge difference at the end of the day if he walks into the building as a second-round pick versus right. a third-round pick. Um, in, in his mind, I'm sure it's, it's not going to be too much different. But, you know, I, I think that's – it's a fair – I don't think they overpicked him. I don't think it was, um, you know, a, a reach. I just think it was probably on the early side of the spectrum okay. from where he was projected to go. And one of the things they, they did talk about, like they felt like maybe he could help in the, as a pass rusher. He got more sacks last year. So do you, do they not see him necessarily in that way or what traits might lead them to think that? And what would you say would be like, well, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know if the, if the, the quickness, you know, in terms of being able to get 
around guys is there. Um, I didn't see it personally. I don't know. You know, I didn't really break down every play of his to to look for that uh, particularly. But if he's, if he's going to be rushing a passer, it's probably going to be more using his lower body as a good lower body base, just being built out that way. Um, you know, being more of a bull rusher, I would say using his hands a little bit more Then he's going to be the guy who's going to use that quick first step and, and get around the edge a little bit. So, you know, I think there's some ability there. I don't think there is that top level potential with him to be, again, that sort of elite interior pass rusher. But I think he's capable of, of just being good enough in, in that category. I don't think he's ever going to be a standout pass rusher, though. What about his personality? Because that's one of the things in our conference call with him seemed like a very fun guy. And the um, when Ron Rivera calls him for, I don't know how long it was, all you heard was after he told his family, all you could hear is the family going crazy. And Rivera's just kind of sitting there on the phone, you know, with, you know, just waiting for him to come back on, but they were going crazy. And then you see him a little bit of the personality on the field, a little bit of dancing and all that, which you would think that, you know, with Alabama, that's like, oh, they, you know, you don't know, do you see that as much? But what was his personality, either what you saw, what you dealt with, what you heard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd say that that's accurate. You know, he's he's a he's a fun guy. I think it still had to happen within the confines of what Alabama sure, is. And, sure, right. You know, I don't <laughs> think he was ever outrageous, you know, on the field. I don't think he was ever um, – I don't think he ever did anything that would make Saban upset at him. Let's put it that way. Like, it was never anything – Outlandish. He seemed like fun, though. He seemed like right. he was fun. He's a fun guy. He's a guy who I think more than anything else they relied upon to talk to us, which at Alabama is there's only a small group of players that that's true for. Um, and the way Saban does it, and he's done it ever since he was at Michigan State, and Plexio Burris had said something the week that they played Michigan as a freshman. Freshmen aren't allowed to talk at Alabama. So that takes away that whole category of players. And then of the players who are left, the upperclassmen, there's only – eight to 10, I would say, who Alabama really trusts to put out in front of the cameras. And we have no say on who they allow to us. You know, there's no open locker room. So he was one of those few guys. So that kind of shows you what Saban thought of him in terms of representing his message and his program. And obviously it's a very tightly restricted program in terms of what they want to get out. So they trusted him in that regard. Um, again, they, they trusted him as a team captain um, and the other players on the team did. So you know, personality wise, I think he's, he's mature. He's been, was at Alabama for five years, has a, a child, um, spent a long time there. I think Saban really respects guys like that, who um, he talks about a lot now with sort of the proliferation of the transfer portal guys who have the resiliency and the, um, he's just sort of what he labels it as, but the toughness to kind of stick it out and, and stay, even though like the first year I got here in 2019, he was, Mathis was not really, contributor at all on defense he was kind of buried on the depth chart and that was his third year and nowadays you might have a player transfers at that point but he kind of stuck it out stayed for a fourth year stayed for a fifth year and became a second round pick and I think Saban really respects guys who have that that long-term view instead of um, pulling the plug early well he was also he's also voted a captain for or named a captain voted a captain whatever the however they do it what traits would you see from him in that regard? And it goes back, does it go back to the ability to stick it out and all that? But what traits as a captain would you guys see or hear about with him? Right. So I think the biggest thing for, for Saban, especially these days, is as a captain, as a leader on the team, being able to tell other players that they're not doing something right, which he sees as something that 
is not that younger players, players coming up these days aren't as willing to do. And he might tie it to like social media these days where players are all about approval of others and likes and, and retweets and all that. Um, but he says, if you're going to be a leader, you need to be able to tell other guys that you're not doing something right and you need to do it better, which that's why he loves Will Anderson. That's why Will Anderson's going to be a high pick next year. But I think Mathis was in that category as well in terms of being able to tell the other guys on defense that they need to step up. And there was a point early last year where that was very much true on defense. And um, they had some issues that they needed to work out. And, um, you know, that's that's the trait that I think Saban looks for the most is the willingness to say to somebody else, you're not doing it right. He's talked about it with Henry Ruggs. That's kind of the, the other example that he's brought up is if, if somebody told Henry Ruggs, you shouldn't be driving the car, then maybe that doesn't happen. And that's the sort of example that he tries to use with his players and then tries to trickle down throughout the team and use guys like Mathis. And I think, um, you know, Mathis was receptive to that, that role. Another guy stuck it out is Brian Robinson, also a third round pick here. What, if, what is Washington getting in him just as a, as a player, as like the reputation and all that? What are they getting in him? Yeah, so similar in terms of um, Saban liking him for sticking it out at Alabama. That was, in fact, I'd say the prime example whenever Saban talked about that last year, whenever he was talking about the transfer portal, was look what Brian Robinson did in terms of him staying for five years at Alabama, was behind a lot of good backs in terms of Josh Jacobs and then Najee Harris for a while and didn't really play a whole lot for his first three years, just like Mathis, and then finally got his opportunity and uh, had a good year. You know, I'd say you can kind of look back in totality over Saban's tenure at Alabama and look at who was their number one running back each year. Robinson's probably low on that list. He might be the lowest guy on that list. In fact, I think Najee Harris is more talented. Mm-hmm. Trent Richardson, obviously, Mark Ingram, Derrick Henry, um, you know, Kenyon Drake. List. It's it's a yeah, there aren't there's not a school that I think has right. produced better running backs over the last 15 years in Alabama. But that's not to say that Robinson's not an NFL caliber player, an NFL capable player. I just think he has a lower ceiling than some of those guys. I mean, Derrick Henry is a physical specimen. Like Brian Robinson's not, um, doesn't have the the speed of some of those other guys. And is just a, a solid player. Again, solid, not spectacular, I think is is probably the category that, that Robinson would fall under. Um, a guy who, you know, can get some tough yards is certainly physical enough. He's, he's built like it. He's, has that mentality where he wants to fight through a guy rather than run around him. Um, and he's capable of breaking a few tackles and, and getting a six, seven yard run out of what should have been a three or four yard run. But he's not the sort of guy who's going to break into open space and, and give you a 20, 30, 40 yard run with any sort of consistency. That's just not his style. It's not his, his athleticism. I don't think it is quite there. Um, and he's a sort of guy who I think can, reliably catch the ball out of the backfield. But again, he's not the sort of guy who's going to take a, a flare pass and turn it into a 50 yard gain. It's just, he doesn't have that capability in him. Um, I think he can give you something in, in the blocking game as a pass protector. He looked pretty good in pass pro at times. Yeah. And that's, I think where that could be his calling card in the NFL that will get him on the field a little bit on third downs, but the, the overall explosiveness, the overall big playability is not there. And that's why he was a mid round pick versus an early round pick. Um, but the durability, I think, is, you know, it's always a double-edged sword with Alabama because I think there's a stigma that if you spend a lot of time in Alabama, you have a lot of carries, your body's going to be worn down, you're going to be damaged goods by the time you get to the NFL. In his case, 
you know, he didn't really play a whole lot his first couple of years so that the mileage is not that high, but he, you know, this past season, he played a lot. He took a lot of carries. He was their number one back. They had a ton of injuries at running back. They were using a wide receiver and a linebacker as his backups by the end of the year because they had no running backs left. And so, you know, he had to take on a pretty big role and that he was durable in doing so. And he even played through an injury in the iron bowl, had a, a calf injury that he played through. And then he ended up playing the next week against Georgia in the SEC championship game when a lot of people didn't think that he'd be ready to play. So there's, there's a toughness factor with him, durability. Um, again, the overall ceiling, I would, I would say, is lower. The overall explosiveness, explosiveness athleticism is probably not quite there, um, but a guy who I think can play a role, at least on an NFL team. And that's what they're looking for him to be as a, one, of the, one of their top three backs and to give Antonio Gibson a break and all that. And one thing that stood out to me a little bit was he does seem to run with, you know, through the hole pretty strong and in some good cuts and whether or not he's explosive, but, you know, understands how to get yards after contact, it seems. Is that pretty accurate, you think? Yeah, I, I would agree. I think he's a smart player in terms of not trying to play outside of the confines of what he's capable of doing, which I think some running backs, you know, I, I remember watching CJ Spiller in Buffalo. And I think for a while, CJ Spiller was capable of doing those things. And then after that, his physical skills kind of diminished, but he was still trying to be that player. But Sean McCoy is probably in that category too in Buffalo that I watched. And you have guys who are just trying to be something different than what they are. I think Brian Robinson knows what he is. He stays within that box and he knows that getting a four or five yard gain is perfectly fine, especially in Alabama's offense. That was perfectly fine rather than trying to tuck it outside and, and try to turn it into a 10 yard gain, 15 yard gain, but then you get stopped and it's a loss. Right. Like he really avoided those sort of negative plays, avoided those dumb plays as a running back. And I think they, they figured he was pretty reliable in that regard. Um, last thing, what is it? We were talking about this before we got on here. What's it like covering Nick Saban? And you cover, you were actually, you start off in, in New England too. So you were experienced with Belichick. What's it like covering Nick Saban? Yeah, I know it's it's a question I often get because I don't think there's too many people who have covered both. Um, no, I think Ian Rappaport might be the only other one because he covered wow. Alabama for a little while and then covered the Patriots. And it's it's different. I would say like Bill Belichick's very closed off. Um, you're not going to get much of an answer for him on most questions. I think we all know that you're not going to get sometimes it's just a, a grunt or a noise or, you know, a, a head shake or whatever it is with him. Nick Saban's going to answer your question, which is good for us. I mean, you ask him about injuries, he's going to tell you the injury. You ask him about how a player played, he's going to give you a pretty honest answer. You know, he's, he's going to give you what you want, but Nick Saban, where he gets these this reputation and where he sort of gets on SportsCenter a little bit is when he has these blow-ups, which is almost always because of the way a question is phrased. And so that's where you have to be, I think, most careful with Saban or most strategic with Saban is just how you phrase your question to sort of avoid the uh, – the blow up that sort of distracts from what you're actually trying to ask about. And that, that sometimes is a little bit tricky with him because he hates hypotheticals and he hates uh, comparisons between players, but you know, you can still accomplish what you want to accomplish as a question asker and just try to work within what he, what, you know, he'll react to. And he's very reactive to certain questions. And um, again, that's different to Belichick. I think Belichick is just unreactive. He just right. give you absolutely nothing. He's very stoic. Whereas Saban, I think, is a little more expressive and will offer an opinion a little bit more. So um, that's been good. But, you know, it's it's Saban's program at this point. He's 70 years old. It's He's the most powerful person in this state. Um, it's just 
he can keep coaching as long as he wants to keep coaching. He knows that he has all of the control and the power they could possibly want or ever have here. And you're just sort of along for the ride. It's just sort of the way it is. And you kind of have to accept that a little bit as a journalist. Um, and real quick, it, summing it up, did Washington make good picks with Robinson and Mathis? Yeah, I think they did. I think if you're looking for the more reliable picks um, in terms of Alabama and projecting them to the NFL and what their roles will be, I think they're probably high on that list of Alabama players. We're not having to guess what they might be or not dealing with injury issues, which Alabama had a lot of players in this draft who had injury issues. Yeah. Uh, Mathis and Robinson were the two that didn't. And they were also the two that had stayed for five years at Alabama and again, showed some of those leadership qualities and um, resiliency qualities that I think will help them out in the NFL. They're not spectacular players. They're probably not guys who are going to go to multiple pro bowls, but I think that they're players who, you know, can play a role at the NFL level and uh, be reliable, stay healthy, do the right things on and off the field and, and just, you know, do what they need to do essentially. And that's, that's what you want. Mike, appreciate your insight. Very good. Thanks for coming on. And it's good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Michael Phillips and Mike Rodak for joining me. And thank you, as always, for listening. I know you got a choice. I appreciate you choosing me. I'll be back with another episode Sunday night or Monday morning breaking down Washington's 2022 roster with Greg Cosell. I'll talk to you next time.